Welcome to Law Technology Now with host Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of ALM's award-winning magazine, Law Technology News. Hear the latest about technology for the legal community. If it's tech, it's a topic right here. Hi, I'm Monica Bay, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our February podcast. Uh, One of my favorite guests is with us today, our EDD columnist, Craig Ball, who writes Law Technology News' Ball in Your Court column. And it's always exciting time for us as we are taping this. We're actually taping it a few days before February, and we are getting ready for legal tech. So um, it's been exciting times around ALM. And Craig was kind enough to actually fly in from Texas. And we had the great pleasure of speaking this afternoon at the New York chapter of the Women in E-Discovery. And, and they're a great group. And if you have an opportunity to participate in any of their events, I would highly recommend them. Craig, for the two people in our universe who might not know uh, what you do, why don't we start by having you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and and how you came to be the LTN columnist through your work in forensics. Sure. I'm a trial lawyer. I've been a trial lawyer for going on 30 years now. In the process of that, I've, I've always been interested in technology, particularly in computers, ever since I was a small boy. And it just happened that I had the good luck to have both my avocation, technology, and computers correspond with my vocation, um, litigation, and discovery at a time when those two skills seem not to have much correspondence. As a consequence of that, um, somewhere along the line, I've been writing CLE papers and giving speeches. I don't know, probably about going on about 700 speeches at this point. Somewhere along the line, you published some of my stuff and asked me to write a column, which you titled rather wittily, ball in your court, and the rest is history. And a wonderful history it is. We're so proud of you. You have won, I think, awards every single year since the column has been launched. Um, And we really appreciate the contributions that you have uh, done for ALM. Well, thank you. But I I would be remiss if I didn't point out that, that I just submit the raw material and the real magic that turns the rewards comes between my two editors. My first editor, who's my lovely wife, Diana, and of course, you, Monica, and for the good art that uh, Shane Deliers puts alongside of it. So thank you to, to everybody who makes me look good. Well, thank you. But it's it's easy to make you look good because your stuff is super. Anyway, moving right along, uh, we're going to speak today about two recent columns, one that is coming for our February issue, hence the February podcast, that uh, Craig and I were wondering uh, how many besides the two of us might actually get the headline because it's a, a very obscure reference to Saturday Night Live of are we just making copies? And uh, you're in this article, you are proposing that it might be time to treat e-discovery work as recoverable court costs. It's a very interesting concept. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the idea you're putting forth and why you think it's important? Well, I, I certainly don't want to leave the impression that I'm the first person to come up with the idea of trying to tax certain parts of e-discovery as court costs. In fact, there are a handful of cases out there already where lawyers have attempted to tax their e-discovery efforts as court costs. Um, some have been roundly rejected, and a, a few of them have, uh, courts have begun to look at some of the components of e-discovery and begin 
comparing them to traditional taxable court costs. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about all of the litigation costs. I'm certainly not talking about attorney's fees or experts' fees. So I don't want anybody to get too excited or exercised about the prospect of shifting those costs routinely. I'm really talking about those things that are akin to traditional taxable court costs, such as um, the traditional costs have been printing fees, photocopying costs, the fees of special masters and court-appointed officers and interpreters. My sense is that once a case is concluded, those costs that are most like those photocopying costs, that are most like those translation fees, that are fairly objective, that are less subject to abuse, that they should be granted the same status afforded more traditional printing and photocopy costs and shifted to the losing party. And Craig, I would assume that the underlying motivation for that would be to help the prevailing party. Well, no, I mean it's really not to help one side or the other. I, I the, the, and it's not. Of course, there's an equitable aspect to this. That I mean, a sense of fairness. A, a, there's a general sense, of course, that that the person winning should be able to recoup some of their costs, and that's a, and that's why federal rules, for example, Rule 54D permits recovery of taxable court costs. But it's more than that. It's also a recognition that since the time in 1978 when the rules were amended, last amended for taxable court costs, we've seen an important change. And that is in December of 2006, requesting parties were given the right to select the form or forms of production. Now, a producing party, of course, doesn't have to respect those requests. But I think it would be a tremendous incentive for a producing party to respect that request, such as for someone who asks, I want native production with metadata, to the extent that the cost of providing native production versus other types of production can be segregated to the extent that they are really just a simple substitute for old photocopying or printing costs, it seems to me that the the rule should conform to the new Rule 34. That is to say, it's a cost that is occasioned by a service sought by the requesting party and delivered to the requesting party, and so it's only fair that that isolated cost be shifted. Now, in your article, you mentioned a few cases. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about uh, some of the cases? Sure. And I I do, again, want to emphasize that when I say it should be shifted, I'm talking here about shifting that cost after the prevailing party has been determined. I'm not suggesting that those costs be shifted during the course of litigation, if for no other reason than because I, I think that that will have a chilling effect on legitimate claims going forward. Uh, and it creates a lot of problems with respect to the long-honored rule that the producing party pays for the cost of production. But we have several cases out there. Um, recently, and I don't mention this in the column, but recently there's a case out of Houston, notable because the author of the opinion is Judge Lee Rosenthal. I'm sorry, I don't have the opinion uh, at hand to even cite it, but it came out really just um, a few weeks ago, uh, around I think it was around Christmas time of 2009. And in that case, the judge looks at the facts and doesn't shift the cost of discovery, in large part because the costs that are being sought never really reached the requesting party in the form of any benefits or production. So I didn't talk about that case in the column for that reason. However, I do talk about, for example, the Clayman versus Freedom's Watch case uh, out of the Southern District of Florida. 
And I also talk about a very recent case, a case that just came out, I want to say, right at the very end of of 2009, which is um, the CBT Flint Partners versus Return Path case. It's important people take a look at that case. Uh, It's out of the Northern District of Georgia, uh, Judge Thrash. And I I think uh, Judge Thrash was, was aptly chosen for that case because he really thrashed um, uh, the parties who were pursuing that case uh, to the point of visiting upon them almost a quarter of a million dollars of e-discovery services. Judge Thrash uh, said that today, electronic discovery is, to quote him, the 21st century equivalent of making copies. And that's where the uh, obscure Saturday Night Live reference you mentioned comes in. I titled the column, Are We Just Making Copies? And I'm referencing an, an old Rob Schneider bit of, I think it was Rich Meister, the copy guy who had his desk near the copying machine. It was such an irritant to anyone who has come in and made copies. I sure remember those. Uh, let's segue, uh, if we can, Craig, to your January column, uh, where you uh, did a wonderful job. Oh, before I get there, uh, could I ask that you would go and do that first case you were talking about and uh, uh, put a post on our blog EDD update in case any of our listeners would like to to get it. They can find it at www.eddupdate.com. And if you have a chance, Craig, to put that up, um, that would be great. So you bet. I'd be happy to it. do that. And I'll link that to a, a copy of the opinion. Oh, that'd be great. And we can link to the podcast, too. Um Moving right along, we we have just a little bit of time left, but um, if we could start uh, with the discussion of the January issue where you put forth an EDD Bill of Rights. And before we go to the break, uh, tell us, if you would, what the setup is. And then when we come back from the break, we'll we'll talk about some of the specific rights and duties. Well, uh, the setup is is I've been thinking a lot about what the minimum standards of e-discovery should be, some certain rights that requesting parties have triggered in large part by a lot of efforts coming to fruition this year of lawyers who really don't do e-discovery and know even less about it, but who seem so angered by e-discovery that they think they're going to roll back the e-discovery rules. Uh, Not only do I think that that's counterproductive and, and really evading their obligations to learn something so key to the practice, uh, but I, I also think that the people who are doing that have an obligation to learn more about the topic, if you will, master the topic. I mean, here's what I would say. Learn to do it right. And if you then believe it's too expensive, I'm listening. But if you're not competent to do it and you're just complaining about it, you don't. You shouldn't have a voice. Now, that's a very angry statement on my part, and that's what led to this next column we'll talk about. Okay, and we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. Don't miss out on the latest in new media marketing opportunities for your firm. Contact Deb Curran at 781-551-9960 and learn all about the Web 2.0 revolution. Coming soon, you can listen to Legal Talk Network shows and get CLE credit at West Legal Ed Center. Stay tuned.
And we are back. And uh, if you're just joining us, our guest is Craig Ball, who is the author of Law Technology News, a monthly e-discovery column called Ball in Your Court, a title I love. And Craig uh, is an attorney based in Austin and also is a special master and a forensics genius. Um, Craig, we're talking about your EDD Bill of Rights, and we have a few more minutes left. Um, could you outline for our listeners some of the rights that you think requesting parties should have and some of the duties and obligations that you feel they should have? Oh, absolutely. And I, oh, here I was really trying to sit down and think about the fundamentals, kind of things that we waste so much time and trouble fighting about in e-discovery, that when you get to know something about this, when you get real, you, you stop worrying about it. And for example... Right number one is that a requesting party has a right to receive production of responsive ESI in the format in which it's kept in the usual course of business. Now, some people are probably wondering, well, isn't that already their right? And the answer is no, not really. They can request it, but if the producing party wants to object and try to substitute uh, naked TIFFs or uh, TIFFs with um, load files, etc. They can do that, and a lot of fights end up as a consequence of image productions being forced down plaintiff's throats and then them realizing that they've got to come back later and demand electronic formats. You know, at this point, it seems to me that if someone is desirous of receiving most things in their native format and they can handle it and they, they communicate that intention early in the process, it's actually a cost and time savings. Well, we can spend a lot of our efforts trying to figure out ways or or exceptions to that as a general proposition, but I think it should be the fundamental presumption. You can get the information in the form in which we keep it and use it as long as you ask us for that in a timely way and in a clear way. So that's the kind of thing I was going for. And other, other things I've talked about were the required or the mandatory disclosure of any alterations that are made to the ESI. We have, going back a few years now, cases like the the Sprint case of Williams versus Sprint that Judge Waxy handled in Kansas. And in that case, you have changes, locking of cells and elimination of metadata that weren't disclosed to the other side. My feeling is if you are going to take away um, a transmitting message from an attachment or or cut away an attachment from a mail uh, message, but you have to disclose that. You can't just wait until somebody figures it out, figures it out and, and screams like a stuck pig. So there has to be that candor about, you know, what we're giving you isn't really the original evidence that's been changed in this way or that. Again, it should strike many listeners as, well, sure, that seems reasonable, but it's not the rule right now. I also think that one of the fights we have, Monica, is about production of metadata. Now, I know there are a lot of concerns about metadata going to um, mostly misinformation, people worrying about mining metadata that's embedded in documents and so forth. But my feeling is, as a general proposition, that if a person can uh, identify the particular metadata data field sought, that is, they know what they're talking about, and they can articulate a reasonable basis why they're requesting it, they should be entitled to receive it. And so I go through these and, and seven other rights that I think should be fundamental. 
And then I talk about what I think are the corollary duties, because no, because rights come coupled with duties. And as a consequence of that, I think that requesting parties have obligations to to focus their requests, to work in an iterative way, to understand the tools they're going to use to uh, review information, to work cooperatively. And so there are another 10 duties that I think are, are fundamentals that should be a part of how we conduct ourselves in e-discovery. Now, whether the 10 rights and duties that I've outlined are are adopted by courts or uh, there's some selection or somebody comes up with an entirely different set of rights or the Sedona Conference incorporates them or something like that. I'm not looking for any credit here, but I really think these are practices that need to be a part of our day-to-day behavior without question. Well, that's quite a comprehensive list, and it's a great article. And I'd like to let the readers know that there's several ways they can read these articles. They can get it through Law Technology News Print. You can go online to our newly merged website, www.lawtechnologynews.com or lawtechnews.com, which is a new combination of the law.com and the LTN sites. You can go to EDD Update, and there is on the right nav bar a a list of all of Craig's columns, um, and they're well worth reading. And we've been talking about his February column and his January column, um, lots of good material. I uh, have to do some housekeeping here. The usual re- uh, reminders that you can find this podcast in three different places on the Law Technology Now website, which is www.lawtechnologynow.com, on the Legal Talk Network, our partners, www.legaltalknetwork.com, and of course on iTunes. Uh, Craig, if someone wanted to reach you, what's the best way? Um, usually putting a large amount of cash in a manila envelope and <laughs> mailing it to me. No, but uh, if, failing that, um, my email address is Craig, C R A I G, at ball, B A L L dot net. And we're going to be, do a big shout out to the usual gang here, Jill Winward and David Jasper here at ALM, the fabulous Luann Reeb, Scott Hess, Mike Hockman, and Kate Kenny at Legal Talk Network. And a reminder that there's no crying in baseball or technology. I'm Monica Bay, and we'll see you next month on Law Technology Now. Law Technology Now is produced by the broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join Monica Bay for next month's podcast on the technology issues affecting the legal profession today.